Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Online internet spaces are places where brave and thoughtful people can push religious communities to change, grow, and equalize. These spaces can offer areas where we can say, things have been like this for a long time, but why must they remain that way? The democratized blogosphere, podcasting, and the increasing access of public scholarship and commentary pushes discussions of religion faster than ever right now, which drive the conversation on how to adapt religious practices as the world changes. Scholars like Dr. Krista Riley are paying attention to these trends and documenting these stories. Dr. Krista Melanie Riley is a pedagogical advisor at a college in Montreal, Quebec. She holds a PhD in communication studies from Concordia University, where her research focused on discussions about gender, bodies, and sexuality on Muslim feminist blogs. When I spoke to her, she was wrapping up a three-year participatory action research project looking at the experiences of Muslim college students in Quebec. Although I spoke only to Krista, her work on this last project is a collaboration effort that she led along with her colleague, Layla Bader, and a team of student researchers. Dr. Riley is the former editor-in-chief of Muslima Media Watch. In this episode, we discuss the study and critique of mosque spaces, the stories of Muslim college students in Quebec, and the work of public scholarship through sacred rights. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Krista Riley, welcome to Classical Ideas. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you, and I'm wondering if we can just start off by having you introduce yourself to the audience a little bit so they know who you are and what you do. Great. Uh, my name is Krista Riley. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, I work as a, a pedagogical advisor at a college in Montreal. Fabulous. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your like academic background a little bit? I'm curious, like, kind of what your areas of main interest are and like a little bit about the stories that uh, 
that kind of came to define your interests uh, throughout your academic journey? Sure. Uh, so I have ended up in a few different programs in a few different cities. <laughs> um, I'm one of the um, one of the members of Sacred Rights who actually does not have a background in religious studies, at least not formally. Although, I noticed that. Uh, yeah. So a lot of my research has uh, touched on religion. I mean, almost all of it in grad school. Um, but yeah, I kind of snuck in through uh, unusual channels, maybe. Um, I did my undergrad uh, at UBC in Vancouver in women and gender studies. And then uh, my master's was in uh, sociology and equity studies and education um, at University of Toronto. And then I came to Concordia University in Montreal for my PhD in communication studies. Uh, so I've switched around cities and fields. Um, but my uh, PhD research, so actually maybe it, it also makes sense to tell you that uh, I guess shortly after I finished my undergrad, um, I started blogging with a blog called Muslim Media Watch, uh, which looks at media representations of Muslim women around the world. Uh, so I joined MMW in 2008, and then in 2011, I took over as editor-in-chief. Um, and that was this really amazing blog that uh, was doing really great work. It's on hiatus now. It's still exists, muslimamediawatch.org, but uh, it's not active at the moment. Uh, but it did some really great work in uh, looking critically at the good and the bad of how Muslim women are talked about in media from around the world. We had, at the time I was editor-in-chief, I think we had people in maybe 12 different countries, uh, really spread out, some really, really amazing people. Um, and so it was partly through that work um, that I guess I, part of how I started writing with that, writing with that blog was that, um, I was, I saw a call for writers and I thought, you know what, actually, this is something that I spend a lot of my time ranting about anyway, I might as well do something constructive with that. Um, and then when I was in grad school, I kind of thought, well, this is stuff that I'm writing about anyway, I might as well turn some of it into academic writing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, in, in my master's in particular, I, I wrote a lot of papers um, that looked at media representations of Muslim women. And often they were expansions of blog posts that I had written or the paper <laughs> got written first and then I turned it into a blog post. Um, and then as I was thinking about doing a PhD, um, you know, again, it just made sense to continue with that theme, um, but I also knew that, um, you know, for example, if I wanted to do a dissertation on all the things that are wrong with how uh, the headscarf is represented or something, just that I was going to lose my mind, that mm -hmm. I, just, I had no interest, you know, it was, it's a topic that's, uh, that's so frustrating, or, you know, if I was going to do something about uh, representations of so-called honor killings or something like that. I just felt like I didn't have it in me to, uh, to work on such a depressing topic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I wanted to really focus on um, instead on how Muslim women were representing themselves mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of 
a bit more sort of taking ownership of that representation. And as I was in the process of narrowing down that topic, um, something that was kind of interesting that had come up on Muslim Media Watch was that um, our official position was that, um, that we didn't kind of make, uh, we didn't make judgments about who got to call themselves Muslim, for example, or that um, our purpose was not to, to look at a particular story and say like, oh, that person's doing Islam wrong. That person's the wrong kind of Muslim. That's not, you know, we, we really tried to avoid um, so our, our official position was to, to avoid doing that kind of thing. But um, I mean, that in a sense, that's also taking a position, right? The mm -hmm. idea that anybody who, who calls themselves Muslim can be Muslim and that, that we uh, actively choose not to make judgments on that. Like that's, that's still a choice, that's still a decision. And, um, and it was really interesting to see sort of the moments where um, over time in particular, where, where we found ourselves um, more vocally and more actively taking decisions. So, uh, for example, in discussions of queer Muslims and saying queer Muslims are Muslim, we are not going to uh, we're we're not going to be a platform for uh, for homophobia for transphobia. Um, we more or less explicitly positioned ourselves as a feminist blog as well. Um, I, I, we. The blog itself was positioned as feminist. Different writers had different relationships with it, and that was fine, um, you know. And so, so part of it was kind of, you know, just being part of that process um, as a Muslim woman myself too, and and kind of thinking about how are we, how are we defining ourselves, and how are we even on this media blog, kind of encountering some of these really interesting questions about gender and sexuality and Islam. Um, and, and so that was part of it. And then also, um, you know, something that, that was such a big part of that blog was the community that was found uh, or that, that was created through that blog, um, both sort of internally among the writers and uh, with some of the people who were reading. And, you know, so it felt like there was something, there was just something important going on there. Yeah. Um, and so as I was, as I was sort of refining what I wanted to look at, um, I had started off really wanting to look at kind of how Muslim women were, uh, were representing themselves to outsiders and to non-Muslims. And um, eventually I ended up more looking at some of the internal conversations that were happening among Muslim women and how that was happening and what were the communities where that was happening. So I ended up uh, for, for my dissertation looking at four different bloggers because um, I really wanted to go into depth in, in their stories and in the, uh, the discussions that were happening there. So I focused on four different bloggers um, and, and looked at the ways that their blogs became spaces for discussions about, mm. um, about gender and bodies and all sorts of ways and gendered spaces and sexualities and, and so on. Um, and then, yeah, I defended uh, just over five years ago. Um, and since then, um, 
I think it's relevant to say that when I when I finished my PhD, I was very, very burnt out. Um, it was a process that was uh, really brutal for, mm. for my mental health um, right. and by extension, physical health. And so I kind of knew when I finished that, that it wasn't, um, I just didn't have it in me to kind of hustle for a tenure track job. Right. Um, and, and I, I had always been open to, uh, to multiple possibilities for what would happen afterwards. Sure. Um, so I ended up, um, finding a job as, uh, my official title is pedagogical counselor. It's better in English. It makes more sense to say pedagogical advisor. Um, at a college in Montreal. So I've been working, uh, officially my job is to uh, to advise teachers on, on all sorts of things pedagogy related, um, especially focused on equity and accessibility. But I also had the opportunity a few years ago to apply for and then receive a research grant uh, looking at the experiences of Muslim college students in Quebec. Awesome. So that's, that's my latest research. Fabulous. Well, we'll talk about all these things, but whenever you're listing your, your West to East journey mm-hmm. in Canada, <laughs> I was like crossing my fingers that you were going to say university of Saskatchewan, because I'm a Husky in my master's program. Well, and so yeah. I was like, Oh, she jumped right over my, my, uh, <laughs> yeah, my town. Sorry. It's really I'm funny. Right I loved over. it. I've, yeah. I've only been to Saskatchewan once. It was beautiful. Yeah, um, it is. It's lovely. Um, I really learned a lot about mm. like the about the world and the natural environment and the mm. importance of like place and I thought about mm. place in a brand new way after living yeah. in Saskatchewan in a way that I had never really thought of in my life um mm. so my time there was really impactful for me on yeah. how I see myself as a person who treads upon this earth um so you know I'm wondering, uh, I want to talk more about your scholarship, but like you just mentioned a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that you're interested in blogging and writing and that you have a back, your background in communication studies that weaves its way into the world of religious studies is so fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we can talk about the the topics that you cover in your research on blogs and, you know, why you chose these topics for your dissertation work. Like, I'm, I'm just really curious about the, the backstory here behind this dissertation and what led you into that area. Now that you're a few years, you know, outside of the mm-hmm. program, um, I'm, I'm glad that it's still something that you're interested in talking about um, because mm-hmm. I was in a PhD program as well. And I dropped out before comps because I realized that I was not right for this. So you stuck it out um, in a way that I couldn't. I but I'm curious about this dissertation topic your research and uh, how you get interested in what you did? Yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, I've touched on a little bit of it in terms of the, um, the personal connection that I had to the topic through the fact that I was active in that world. Um, even though, you know, I was writing, um, anything I was writing was, was almost exclusively, you know, responding to particular media texts, I wasn't sure. necessarily, or it was rare that I was writing about my own experience or really reflecting uh, publicly in a blog on, um, on my experience. But yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think some of it was just, um, you know, some of the questions that I got into or the, the idea to look at Muslim feminist blogs was, was just that, you know, they were, asking a lot of the same questions that I was asking 
in my life, you know, some of it was very sort of self-serving that I just wanted a chance to be able to, uh, to think about some of these questions. But I think there's also something really interesting that, um, that happens through, through blogs and, you know, more recently other kinds of, of social media. Um, in this mix of being able to reach a large audience uh, fairly easily, if you already have access to, um, you know, something, some device to write on and an internet connection of some kind, um, that you can reach a large audience, um, but that, you know, with, with something like blogging, um, there isn't necessarily a sense that you have to have something that's super polished and all your sources are cited and all the, um, you know, everything's finished and you've come to a conclusion and whatever you can, there's a kind of thinking out loud that can happen absolutely um, through that, that process that uh, I think can be really fruitful and generative um, and, and being able to, um, and and to be clear, the the bloggers that I was looking at, they often were citing sources at at times, or you know, they their their thoughts were based in a lot of research and reading that they had done. Um, but just this uh, this process of being able to um, to to think out loud about things and to kind of publish things as you're figuring them out and to publish posts. Uh, that might contradict things that you wrote a few years ago um, and and to, you know, shift your relationship to your audience as things go or to shift what you are thinking about in relation to the what the audience is asking you about. Um, all of that just, it was such a rich uh, field for, um, for really looking at the ways that people were thinking through questions that really mattered to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and also um, a lot of, uh, a lot of what was happening too was sort of starting from a personal story and then from that story um, drawing particular conclusions or, you know, just going in these different directions and, um, and there can sometimes, uh, both within academia and within uh, certain Muslim communities, there can be a sense that you need to to start with a text or to to focus on texts to to ground your analysis. Um, and and this idea of sort of starting from stories, and of course, you know, lots of people also in in Muslim tradition since the beginning also are starting from, from stories in, in lots of different ways, but to, yeah. to be able to just, um, you know, sort of start from a story and this happened or to use a story as a moment where, um, where you kind of realize that maybe what you thought before actually doesn't work. So, um, you know, to give a couple examples of that, uh, one, one blog post that I looked at that was, had gotten, uh, a very wide readership, um, was published by Evie Okoye, who's one of the bloggers that I looked at. And um, she wrote about, um, she she and a friend were like out for a drive or they had, they had been out doing something that day. They were on their way home, um, but the time came to pray and, oh, look, they were driving by a mosque. So great, they were gonna stop and pray. And uh, they found that the women's section in that mosque was just, tiny and mm-hmm. 
not comfortable and not well-equipped. And meanwhile, there was tons and tons of space in the men's section. So they said, okay, I'm just going to pray at the back of the men's section. Um, and, uh, and then later some of the men kind of told them, you know, well, you weren't supposed to pray there. That's not okay. Um, and, you know, and so Ify, in in reflecting on this story, she she referred to the women's section of the mosque as the penalty box. And she said, mm. you know, we got there on time. We, you know, we were there to pray. We were doing the right thing. And why are you putting us in the penalty box? Um, and, and then that became, um, that was sort of the central story. But in the same article, which was actually, it was published on a, a, a larger blog than her own blog, um, she was then also talking about religious conferences she would go to where there was a, a norm of men sitting in the front and women sitting in the back. And she said, I paid the same amount of money to come to this conference. I want to sit in the front. I want to be able to, uh, to have more access to the speaker and, and things like that. And she did, uh, within the post, she did talk a little bit about, um, you know, that, that she understood it to be entirely appropriate even within fairly conservative readings of islam to uh to pray in the same space as the men and mm-hmm. uh you know just and and she she's like yeah there was distance between us like um you know and um yeah so she 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 sort of used this story and she was weaving in um you know weaving in other experiences and weaving in um things she had, she had learned or, you know, more sort of, uh, things she, she learned within, you know, more, uh, mainstream ish Muslim spaces or, you know, within, within particular classes she'd been to that were, uh, quite popular within her community. Um, and it was this way that, that in telling that story, um, she was pointing to a whole bunch of other things and there was all this, you know, there, there was interpretation of text happening and there was, um, you know, lots of discussion about like, who are we as a community? And, and just that this, this story kind of anchored this bigger discussion and that particular post, because it was actually published on a larger blog, it got hundreds of comments. And um, as you can imagine from, from a big range of things. And so, you know, a lot of, people responding and saying like, thank you. Yes, I agree. And then other people saying not at all. Some people responded and, and really, really saw themselves reflected in what she was writing about. And then other people responded really critically and said, well, you're not basing yourself enough in religious texts or you're, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or just, well, why are you making us look bad? Um, You know, which is, not an unreasonable question to ask in a really Islamophobic world too, that it's, it's really complicated to be writing some of these things. Mm. Um, you know, and so there was just this, this whole discussion that, that came about um, as a result of this, this one, uh, one blog post that she told um, one of my favorites. So, so the, um, the topic of, of gendered spaces in mosques is uh, is one that I think we'll come back to because that was something that I recently published a book chapter about. But to quickly touch on the other topics that um, that I looked at there, uh, one was on menstruation, um, and so one of the the other bloggers I had looked at, Nahida, um, she 
had published this post where, um, so to give you a, a really brief uh, synopsis of the situation she was responding to, um, for Muslims to do the ritual prayer, uh, there's an ablution process of washing that happens first. Um, and anything that is considered, uh, so you're washing your, your face and your uh, hands and arms up to the elbow, um, sort of rubbing the top of your head and washing your feet. Um, and anything that can be considered sort of a barrier to that ablution, uh, you're not supposed to have. So um, that includes nail polish. Um, but because of complicated laws around ritual purity, um, when uh, basically bleeding is understood to invalidate uh, ablution so that while a person is menstruating, they are uh, let off the hook from having to do the ritual prayer because it's understood that, um, that, that you aren't able to do the, the ablution. Again, there's lots of different people have different approaches to this. Um, so anyway, all of that to say um, that for many Muslim women, the only time that they'll wear nail polish, which would be a barrier to ablution, is while they're on their period. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sorry, for, by that I mean for many Muslims of all genders, um, not everyone who menstruates identifies as a woman. Um, so Mahida uh, posted something about how a friend of hers had been wearing nail polish um, and her, her friend's mom had said, well, you know, do you really want to like show the world that you have your periods? You know, people will know. Um, and Nahida was sort of reporting on that conversation that her friend had told her about and then said like, I mean, I think her, her language was fuck yeah. That yes, she did want people to, to know she was menstruating. She was very happy for that, for people to know. And from there, she um, started every so often. It didn't end up happening as often as she initially had wanted it to, but uh, she started posting uh, pictures of her painted fingernails every month. Nice. Um, and it was just this like really fun, really playful response to you know, a particular set, not only of religious rules, but also of kind of social and cultural norms around talking about menstruation. And, you know, and those are taboo, not only in, in uh, Muslim communities. Um, and, you know, and again, there was this like great sort of series of discussions that came up um, as a result of her uh, posting these pictures of nail polish. Um, and, and one thing that I think is really interesting and sort of going back maybe to your bigger question about what was interesting in, in looking at blogs is that, um, you know, it's easy, like we use language for, for example, of, you know, online versus real life as mm -hmm. if real life happens, uh, yeah. you know, is, is something separate from online. And I mean, sure. we've all just been living through a pandemic. And so I think it's, it's maybe a little bit clearer that, you know, <laughs> all of our whole lives are happening online for, for many of us lately, or they, they have been uh, for much of the last year and a half. Um, but there was something super interesting in, in, you know, in this action of taking pictures of her hands and, 
of really like bringing her her body into her blogging in this different way both you know and and also uh not only the pictures of the hands but also these discussions of you know stories of experiences of menstruating um and so that was um that was this like really uh just really you know again fun and playful thing to look at um and also um it it brought up a lot of issues and Kirsten Dane one of the other bloggers I looked at um she also had a, a blog post about menstruation that that picked up on a few things, partly about you know what what does it mean to uh, to not talk as often about menstruation, um, and and she was also kind of pushing back around the um, you know okay you're saying that I'm sort of off the hook I'm not obligated to pray when I have my period what if I want to pray when I have my period and sort of looking through some of the different um, legal things that were going on, uh, the, the different sort of legal justifications that get used, but also the, um, the way that some of the people making those legalistic rulings um, sort of downplay the situation, kind of say like, well, you know, it's nice, you get a break from, from praying, like you should just enjoy that break. And she said, well, prayer is actually really important to me as a Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be able to pray. I understand that like, if that's what the law says, I also want to be following that. But can we talk about how it feels? Can we talk about, you know, about the things that actually don't, um, the things that like are not covered by the legal conversation, by the conversation just about what you're allowed and not allowed to do, but the, uh, the different experiences that people have. Um, and then the one other topic that I focused on um, was looking at uh, queer issues within Islam. And um, again, looking at that as something that, you know, often the focus is on discussions of law and talking about, you know, certain things not being allowed. And um, really what that gets into is the regulation of sexual acts, particular sexual acts. Um, and the ways that, that all the bloggers in different ways kind of said, like, that doesn't, um, regulation of sexual acts, like, does not fully cover what it means to be queer, what it means to have particular attractions or identities or relationships. Um, and so they're out of the four that I looked at, only one of them, um, Ify, who I mentioned earlier, she was the only one who identified herself as queer. Um, but she, again, kind of, you know, really centered a lot of it in, in her personal experience and just, again, kind of said, like, I am a queer woman. I'm also a Muslim woman and a Black woman and a nurse. And she had this, you know, whole list of, of things that identify herself and and that was one of those things. And people would respond to, to the post. I mean, a lot of people responded with support to be clear, but uh, she also had a lot of response that was, um, that was really critical and, and, you know, or that would say things like, well, that's forbidden in Islam. And she said, you know, she kept sort of responding with like, well, what do you mean that's forbidden? I just, I'm telling you a thing that's true about myself, like having this, uh, having this identity or having, uh, you know, 
the attraction that I have or whatever else like that's there's actually like the law doesn't have a lot to say on some of that the law talks about like particular sexual act and I mean there's obviously always different interpretations of that as well um and so there as well there was a kind of um maybe somewhat less lighthearted than the say nail polish post but there was a a really interesting kind of um just process of over time, the ways that particular stories got told, um, being a really interesting space for kind of trying out, like, how about if we talk about this topic in this way? How about if we frame this topic in this way? Um, and I think that that process of experimentation and, and uh, just, yeah, sort of playing with um, how do we reach the interpretations that matter to us and that have meaning to us and just that, that, you know, resonate as true to us, sure. um, that, that that's a, a kind of long and complicated and, and just ongoing process. I love how you challenge the notion of the space as well, right? Like in, mm-hmm. in your, in your work, like you, you, you write about mosque spaces and Mm -hmm. Muslim space and women's space within Islam, but it's not just the physical space inside of the mosque. It's online as well. So I love the way that you expand the notion of space to be more than just a physical space, because Mm -hmm. it seems like you also tend to highlight some awareness building campaigns within virtual space that like the work of Kirsten Dane is sort of standing out to me here mm-hmm. about how she's asking us to imagine a more egalitarian vision right. in the online space. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can comment on that as well, because uh, that was really capturing my attention a lot when I was reading sure. your work. Yeah. So I think um, I think there's a few things to say there. And um, one is that, um, you know, not only. Um, not only are we talking about sort of these offline spaces and online spaces, but that there's so much to say in terms of how they influence each other and, mm-hmm. and uh, the, yeah, the way that, um, so Nahida, for example, had posted something on uh, her blog about the mosque, her local mosque was renovating and she was upset with uh, the, discrepancy between the amount of room in the men's section and in the women's section. Um, And so she had written about that. And then she also, um, I can't remember if she just gave the name of the mosque or if she actually gave contact information for it on her blog, but she basically asked people, you know, if you're also upset by this, please join me in in getting in touch with the the people in charge. Um, And so people, at least as far as they reported in the comment section, there were quite a few people, even though they weren't anywhere near Nahida, they were maybe never in their lives ever going to visit this mosque. Mm-hmm. That didn't really matter. They were people who had experienced similar things, who um, you know had had shared similar experiences, even in different spaces. And so they they kind of came together to support her campaign to change this one particular space. So um, so there was you know this again, really interesting thing happening between this, this online community and the physical space of that particular mosque. Um, but yeah, the, the post that Kirsten wrote, um, I found so powerful. So it was, um, 
she tells this story of going to this wonderful mosque with her her family at the time um she she had one daughter at the time and so she tells this story of going to the mosque with her husband and her daughter who is called Erin for the the purposes of her blog um and it's this great mosque there's different options for where to sit so if you prefer a segregated space you can be there but you can also sort of sit more towards the middle if you want to sit more with your family uh, there's all sorts of workshops on really interesting topics um, it's uh, a queer affirming space it's a space that has um, I think a community garden and a uh, you know a food pantry and sort of all these different kind of amazing things uh, within this mosque. And there's different, you know, leadership, religious leadership classes for all genders and so on. And then she gets to the end of the blog post and she talks about Erin as a teenager getting up to do the call to prayer and how, how um, proud she feels of seeing her daughter do that. Um, and for anyone who is familiar with Kirsten's blog or who, who was at that time, uh, they would know that Erin was actually only a toddler when that post was published. And so, you know, after, after this buildup of this beautiful ideal space, uh, we learn that, um, that it doesn't exist. <laughs> that it's, oh, right. it's imaginary that Kirsten is projecting herself into the future with this vision of this mosque that she wants to be able to bring Erin to when she is a teenager. Um, and reading through the comments on that particular post was really interesting because there were more than one commenter talked about really being moved to tears. Yeah. Um, I think both by, uh, by this beautiful vision that Kirsten had and by the, the letdown at the end of realizing that it wasn't real. Um, and, you know, and it really struck a chord and, and people, I think that was a, a post where um, there were several people from other countries were responding to it. It really kind of struck a chord worldwide. Um, and something that I found so fascinating about that particular blog post was that um, the people, so the, the people who were commenting also started, um, started kind of adding to it as well. So one person was saying, you know, what about accessibility? Um, is there ASL interpretation or, you know, is it physically accessible? And, you know, Kirsten was like, well, it doesn't exist, but yes, I would want it to have those things. And, and other people uh, threw in other, other examples. And so that it was, um, this kind of collective process of imagining a space, but it was a process that was being undertaken by people who, um, you know, similar to the, the idea with Nahida's mosque, like people who were almost certainly never going to all be in the same physical space together. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, like this, this imaginary mosque was playing a few different roles, like both as a, a sort of future projection, but also as, um, as this way of people being able to imagine themselves together. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and I think that was, um, that was a really interesting thing to see. And, and I think kind of a really beautiful thing to be able to see there. And, um, you know, the, 
I ended up uh, publishing a, a book chapter related to um, to the chapter that I had written initially for my dissertation, um, you know, uh, about mosque spaces, and it came out just a few months ago. Um, and it's really interesting to have something about, uh, you know, among other things, virtual mosque spaces come out during a pandemic. Yeah. When uh, lots of people who who previously might uh, might never have participated virtually in something like this uh, found themselves with that as their only option. Right. Um, you know, but one of the other things that happened was that people were able to take part in services happening at other mosques um, that they never would have been able to before because those wouldn't necessarily have been live streamed before. Um, and, and people who for um, different accessibility reasons might not have been able even to go to their local mosques or for example, uh, people who were unhappy with the uh, gender division of space at their local mosques had a different kind of access to uh, religious spaces in a pandemic than they had before. Um, you know, and I think like that's a really interesting thing for, for us to carry forward that, you know, we've, um, you know, in, in some ways that chapter feels, um, just feels like it's from a different world now because yeah. <laughs> um, so much has changed. And certainly there's a lot that I would have written differently if I had written it. Uh, sure. You know, in the last year and a half, um, you know, I, th I think it's still relevant, but I think there's, there's some new stuff to be said now too, about, um, again, about sort of creative uses of online space and thinking about what does it mean to build space and community together? Um, yeah, uh, you know, how to do that online, but also like, what are the, uh, what are the lessons to carry back with us into our physical spaces as well? Yeah. And, you know, there's a few of you within the sacred rights cohort that are looking at the changes in online spaces in the last mm -hmm. couple of years as well. So I'm thinking of um, Deepa's work and I'm mm -hmm. thinking of Caitlin's work and I'm thinking of your work. So there's kind of like this undercurrent thread mm -hmm. of what's going on in different spaces virtually and in, you know, quote unquote, the real world. Mm -hmm. And I just love that there's this like consistent little subplot among right. the work that uh, that several of you are doing within the cohort. It's really cool. Um, mm -hmm. Can we talk about Quebec for a little bit? Sure. I've never talked about Quebec on this okay. podcast before. All right, let's and do it. so this is a delight because I, I always try to make a point of mentioning whenever I've never talked about something before mm. on this show, because I've done 200 plus of these episodes. Yeah, so to talk amazing. about something yeah. for the first time is fabulous. <laughs> so um, you write about Muslim college students in mm. Quebec under a period of what is referred to as religious neutrality in the province. And right. I'm, wonder I'm wondering if you can tell me about this term mm -hmm. and what this means like here and now. Sure. Um, so Quebec, um, I mean, without going in too much detail in the history of Quebec, but uh, Quebec has a really complicated relationship with, with religion that um, predates the, 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 the presence of a large number of Muslims in the way that exists today. Um, 
it's a very strong uh, part of the, the Quebec cultural and national narrative um, is the role that the Catholic Church had played here. So Quebec being the um, Canadian province that was primarily colonized by the French and um, where the Catholic Church played a really uh, a very big role and a role that was um, that was experienced as oppressive by many people and 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 that's a really um, strong part of the way that religion gets talked about and thought about in Quebec um, and and there's a, a strong narrative of having kind of overcome the role that Catholicism and the Catholic Church played in Quebec, um, both sort of in generally in general and um, and it plays a big role in the narrative of feminist movements of, in Quebec as well. That that in particular, um, liberation of women came as part of this process of uh, pushing back against the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, and so. So that's some of the some of the backdrop there, um, but of course that ends up uh, intersecting and overlapping in all sorts of ways um, with an increased presence of Muslims in the province, um, and uh, you know among other things with that uh, meaning that. Um, well, there, there are just a lot of really strong reactions to the visible presence of people who are identifying themselves as religious through wearing headscarves. Um, and, and so a lot of, I mean, and there's also just, you know, racism that exists anywhere in, you know, the world, uh, in, including in uh, settler colonial states in the, uh, North America and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's... Uh, in giving that history, I don't mean to, obviously, like, I don't mean to justify any of it, but just to, uh, I want to kind of highlight what some of the narratives are that are at play in the response to um, visibly religious people now, and in particular to, therefore, Muslim women. Um, So there have been a, a series of attempts to figure out, I guess, kind of how to regulate this presence of Muslims. Um, And uh, there was a a commission back in 2007 and eight around religious accommodations uh, that was sort of the result of some really, you know, blown out of proportion moral panics, uh, but that became this this space where people were airing all sorts of grievances about what they saw as, you know, increased um, increased presence of uh, Muslims. Some of the some of the the reaction also was was in relation to Orthodox Jewish communities who actually have a very long history here. Um, and so since uh, since that time, even since slightly before, there have there have just been a lot of different uh, attempts politically to figure out um, what to do, how to respond. Um, and, 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 and there's been a strong sense that there is a need to figure out how to regulate these things, that it's not, uh, 
it's not enough to just sort of live and let, let live. So mm-hmm. one of the, um, well, the, the most all-encompassing law that was proposed was uh, proposed in 2013. It was known as the Quebec Charter of Values um, and really was, was framed um, largely around uh, the religious neutrality of the state. The word that, that comes up a lot here is laïcité, um, which gets translated as secularism. It's not, um, not exactly synonymous with that, but, but relates to, um, yeah, to kind of managing the, the presence of religion in, uh, in a particular context. And, um, and often, you know, really, uh, about sort of relegating religion to the private sphere, um, or to, um, or to things that that here in Quebec are sort of have been there for so long that people forget that they're religious. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Quebec Charter of Values, if it had passed, which it didn't, um, it would have meant that anybody working in any public position um, would have been banned from wearing uh, what were referred to as ostentatious religious symbols or visible religious symbols within their roles. And and this being Quebec, like a lot of things are publicly funded positions. So it would have been, um, you know, doctors, nurses, anyone working in in healthcare, um, anyone working in uh, education, I don't think universities were covered, but uh, elementary and secondary schools, as well as the the SAGEP system, which is uh, the college level that I work in, um, anyone working in those spaces, um, anyone working in government, obviously, um, and and various other spheres uh, would not have been allowed to to wear that. Um, However, for example, there's a a cross that, um, I think has now been taken down, but, but hung in the, provincial parliament of Quebec, um, like an actual crucifix. And that was understood to be a cultural symbol. And so mm. that, uh, that was seen as fine, um, which struck many of us as, as rather hypocritical because that was the, that symbol actually was originally put there to uh, remind parliament of the Catholic values of the province. Like that, yeah. that was actually there as, as an officially, um, you know, normative thing to symbol to to look at, whereas you know a person's headscarf is just that like that's what they are choosing to wear. So uh, anyway, so that law did not pass, but it certainly um, was pretty rough. <laughs> it was it was a moment really where um, a lot of people found themselves taking very vocal stands on the issue. And, and, you know, a lot of, for example, Muslim friends of mine uh, learned all sorts of things about their colleagues and neighbors and where they stood on things that uh, they had not known before. Yeah. Uh, That's happened to a lot of us the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, there's different moments, right. Where, where that happens. Um, It was also a moment where reports of Islamophobic attacks um, again, especially on Muslim women, really skyrocketed, where it just seemed like people felt a huge level of permission to just go ahead and and do that, um, you know, and, and 
yeah, attack people, whether verbally or physically. Sure. Um, so that law did not pass. And there were different uh, different things that that came up in the meantime. Um, and and I want to say also that uh, this was something that that has come up among all of the political parties that have held power in Quebec over the last uh, few decades. Um, that it's not only, for example, the separatist parties who have come up with different ways of regulating Muslim women's dress. Um, it has also come up in the, the Liberal Party, um, which introduced a bill um, that was more, it was more restrained. It was just focused on niqab, so just face coverings, which also is very funny to talk about right now because we're all wearing face coverings everywhere. Yeah. But, um, well, not down here in the US, we're not, but that's a different true. story. Okay. Here, here we are. Um, still, um, including, so one of the, one of the things actually that had come up at a national level was about, um, there was a big panic around, uh, whether it was okay to vote with, uh, to vote with your face covered, um, you know, for identification purposes, Never mind the fact that, uh, our election laws do not require photo ID in order to vote. So you can vote without a photo ID but you can't do that if your face is covered. It's very mm. weird. Anyway, we have an election happening um, Next on week. Monday, but yeah. yeah, lots of us are, uh, I voted um, in advance a few days ago. Obviously my face was covered as I was voting because I mean, here at least uh, that's still a thing. So um, yeah, it's anyway, it's, it's very, um, I mean, funny, but also kind of devastating to to see some of this happening because all of these things that um all of these reasons that got raised for um you know it was often in the language of like security of like oh well if we can't identify someone then it's not safe or if we can't see someone's face then what if what if what if um you know and and you know everything like all these sort of, I don't know, bank robberies or something that people were worried about or <laughs> fraud things. I don't even know that people were were supposedly worried about. Um, you know, you'll be shocked to hear that like none of those have happened, even though we've all been wearing face masks for the last forever, it feels like. Anyway, uh, so that was, that was, that has happened in the meantime. And then in, um, I guess it was 2018 when the, the current... Uh, Quebec government was elected. Um, they actually had not campaigned a whole lot around uh, Muslim women's dress. Like I remember actually being surprised that like, oh, you're not throwing Muslims under the bus this election. That's mm. unusual. Uh, and, uh, but they did the day after they were elected, uh, they announced that one of their priorities was to pass a law regulating um, yeah, religious dress. Again, it always gets framed as uh, as sort of visible religious symbols, but it's very clear in the language that uh, they're primarily talking about Muslims. And certainly it is Muslim women who are the majority of people who are wearing uh, these visible symbols. Uh, so that, that eventually passed into law in um, June of 2019. Uh, so that people who work, it's not as, um, as widespread as the Quebec Charter of Values, but it's people who work in positions that are seen as having a particular kind of authority um, and in, in public positions uh, with 
the publicly funded positions with a particular kind of authority are not uh, allowed to wear visible religious symbols. So in this iteration, in the, the version of the law that's passed, that includes um, teachers in elementary and secondary schools, um, as well as uh, police officers and uh, government prosecutors. Um, there's a few other categories. Uh, so it's it's not quite as widespread, but especially at the level of teachers, uh, it still affects a whole lot of people. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. In this context, in this provincial climate that you've been describing that have been taking place over the last several years, you've got a project that you've been working mm-hmm. on where you research with and among uh, the students in your in your province. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing participatory action research, which I also have never talked about on this show. And I'm curious to hear about, but I'm wondering what your project and your, your main focus is considering this climate in the province you're describing and what you are doing, uh, with the students with whom you work. Great. So, um, yeah, so the, basically sort of the, the aim of the project is to learn about uh, what are the experiences of Muslim college students in Quebec. And when I say college in this context, it's referring to a system that's that's known here as the SAGEP system. It's kind of, um, for students who are going on to university, it's a, it's a stage in between high school and university. Um, there are also career programs. So it, you can also uh, get, um, for example, a nursing diploma or an animal health technology diploma um, from a SAGEP and then go into to working right away. Um, and so it's it's students who are um, around, on average, kind of 17 to 19 or 20 years old. So um, quite young and, you know, at the very, very beginning of their, their post-secondary lives. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, we we wanted I, partly a big part of why I wanted to focus on that is just that that is the um, that's the context that I work in, and therefore it was the context that it was going to be the most straightforward for me to get research funding to look at. Um, but it's also a, a a cohort that hasn't been studied a lot, and so something that's interesting to think about in relation to uh, where we are now is that I actually applied for that funding before the latest law was announced at all, let alone passed. Um, so I had applied for it in, uh, I guess, January of 2018. Um, but it was still, you know, I mean, partly it's like, it's still in the wake of the Quebec Charter of Values, which really had, had really shaken things up. Um, it was a year after there had been a, an attack on a mosque in Quebec City where six men were murdered mm-hmm. um, and many other people were injured. Um, and um, and it was a moment also where um, a lot of the research that was going into uh, looking at young Muslims' experiences was looking at it from the point of view of radicalization. And so it was looking at it from from this idea of, you know, Muslim students might be dangerous. How do we 
make sure that they're not too dangerous? How do we make sure that they don't radicalize? How do we learn about what might be the things that, uh, that are causing them to become radical? Um, which, you know, to me, uh, felt like just such an adversarial approach to have to, to our students, you know, and, um, and so uh, I, had, I had seen uh, some early stages of some projects like that. Um, so part of the initial aim in proposing the project as well was about saying, we spend, you know, the, just the world spends a lot of time talking about Muslims and these discussions of radicalization are talking about Muslim youth um, and, you know, and, and really about the exact age group that, uh, that exists within our college. And to say, you know, just like, we need to do more talking to Muslims and actually, you know, and this is where the participatory action research project part comes in, um, you know, actually involving these students as researchers in the project uh, to be able to really look at um, look at what what their lives are like, and so for um, the well, yeah, just the um, so we started the project in the in the fall of 2018, and then it was uh, only a few months later that the current government was elected, and then they made that announcement about this law they were proposing. Um, and suddenly there was just this sense of like, oh my goodness, we have, uh, we're gonna have even more to deal with than we already thought, you know, we, we already assumed we would have a, a sort of full plate of stuff to look at. And uh, yeah, there, there's always more, it turns out. I love it. Well, what are you finding in this work that you're doing with these students? I'm curious what some of the major findings are, what it's like to be Muslim in college age these days mm. in Quebec, because this is, you know, a, a population that I know virtually nothing about and you have firsthand experience. And I'm wondering if you have any stories about what you're finding. Sure. So there's, yeah, a few, um, a few different things that, that have come up. So we ended up, um, some of our research got cut short by COVID. Um, we had hoped to do more interviews outside of Montreal, um, but we still managed to speak to uh, in total about 40 students um, and you know a lot of different backgrounds and, and different experiences. Uh, so yeah, there are a few things. Um, a lot of our focus was on their experiences at school and, and on um, yeah, what, what they've experienced uh, within their, their college. And, uh, so the, the college where I work is quite diverse and there's a very high Muslim population. Um, you know, and so a lot of people talked about, uh, really appreciating the diversity where we are, you know, a lot of them had quite a few positive things to say, and, and a lot of them had overall very positive impressions of, um, of our college. Um, but even that has been really interesting to sort of look at and, and dig into a little bit more. Um, and, and that was, I think the, the students we spoke to in, in other colleges also um, often talked sort of overall about positive experiences. Um, but one of the things that, that came up is just sort of the, the amount of work that many young Muslim students put into 
sort of managing their expectations of the spaces where they are. Um, and so one quote that, that actually one of our student researchers really picked up on, but that, um, that I think was a really good thing to, to sort of point to and keep coming back to was um, one student uh, who, when asked about, you know, does she feel safe in the college? She said something about, yeah, I feel really safe. You know, it's a really safe place to be Muslim. No one's going to pull off your hijab. Mm-hmm. Um, which on one hand, great. Uh, on the other hand, that's a really low bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so an answer like that reflects a lot about about where that bar is when people are thinking about safety within the college. Um, it reflects a lot about um, the, the kinds of concerns that they might have outside of the college. Um, you know, and I mean, it makes me think about, uh, I think it was in maybe June or July this year that um, a Muslim family in London, Ontario was killed um, by a, a car being a man drove a car into them basically and and killed uh, most of the members of this family. And, um, you know, and and just thinking like, yeah, this this low bar, uh, you know, there's still all sorts of, all sorts of Muslims who are, uh, who are experiencing a lot of violence, who are experiencing situations that, you know, that don't even pass that, that bar. Um, you know, but I think that was something or, or someone else talked about um, feeling uh, feeling really glad when the college had uh, she she had been at college in college already when um, the attack on the mosque in Quebec City had happened. And she talked about feeling really glad that the college did something to commemorate it, um, but that she had not expected the college to do so. Mm-hmm. That and and she was really clear that she she very deliberately kept her expectations really low so that she could be pleasantly surprised, but that um you know that she didn't expect that the college was going to to do anything um you know, and so I think there's some really interesting things you know even even in a space where students had actually a lot of good things to say there's there it has been really interesting to sort of unpack. Uh, what's missing there or, or what else can be told from that. And, and, you know, it's, it's just a really complicated story. Um, you know, another student uh, talked about being in class the day that the, the attack in New Zealand had happened uh, two years ago. And um, she was in a class that would have been where it would have been really relevant to talk about that. And the teacher didn't talk about it, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so that was an example of, you know, just of, of like the kind of acknowledgement that would have been valuable. And in that case didn't happen. And the, the kind of alienation that, um, that she felt as a result of that. Um, and the other, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to say, but maybe the other, the one other thing that I'll, draw out of, you know, some of the examples of the research is um, the the other kinds of spaces where people are really feeling unsafe and the relationship of that to 
the political climate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, we did not ask at all about um, student experiences on public transit. Like that, it just that wasn't something that had occurred to us to include in the questions. Um, but a very high number of students, um, well, maybe around half the students we spoke to mentioned public transit at some point, usually as a space where they felt particularly unsafe. Yeah. Um, and and I found it just really telling that that came up so often when it wasn't something we had asked about, um, but it would come up. Uh, we asked people to to talk about um, just their level of safety in Montreal in general, and then in in Quebec outside of Montreal. And so many people talked about um, being on the metro as the space where they felt like they had to be really vigilant. Um, and a lot of people talked about that in particular um, as something that they felt they had to be more vigilant as soon as the current government in Quebec had been elected um, or as soon as the as that law had been announced, that there was this sense that like I used to be able to fall asleep on the bus and now I don't or mm. um, just a sense of being worried about you know, what if someone pushes me onto the metro tracks or things like that, like really, you know, serious worries um, that that people have. And, you know, and and in some cases, these fears of physical violence happen because they know someone who has had that experience or, you know, they know someone who knows someone, you know, there's not that many degrees of separation. And so um, just hearing about the impact in the, of the political climate on the way that people, um, you know, especially young women who wore hijab, um, the way that they felt about, you know, just moving through their city um, was was really uh, powerful to hear, um, you know, it was really hard to hear. Uh, but I think that that says a lot um, about the impact of these kinds of laws um, you know, before before they're even passed into laws, a lot of the the interviews happened. Almost all of the interviews actually happened before um, before it was passed into law, and many of them happened even before it was formally proposed. But it it had been announced, um, and already students were reporting just feeling so different. And I think, you know, sometimes the um, sometimes the the particular effects of the law get seen as, you know, just being limited to the people who work in the professions that um, that are targeted by it. Um, and this research made it really clear that, you know, these students are too young to be working in any of those jobs. And many of them uh, weren't necessarily planning on going into those jobs. Some of them were. We, we, we did speak to uh, some young women who wore hijab who had plans to go into education and we're having to rethink that. But um, but they, the impact of the law was not at all limited only to them. Gotcha. Um, you know, Krista, I'm wondering, uh, so you have, you have, you're, you're looking at the lives of students that you work with in the here and now people whose lives that you can see and impact and be a part of, mm-hmm. and, you know, make an actual difference in like the world in your immediate surroundings, which is so fantastic because you're playing a part in making your actual community better. 
which is really, really cool. Um, we tend to think about things and like, yeah, like people mm-hmm. who care about the world tend to worry about the world in like a massively global context, but there's so many little things that we can change mm-hmm. right in front of our faces, right in front of our eyes in our own neighborhoods. And I feel like that's almost like one of the guiding forces of your work is making your immediate surroundings better, mm-hmm. which I love. And so I'm wondering about, you know, your experience with the sacred rights cohort in the last year mm-hmm. and how they are, you know, sort of helping you um, with honing your voice and honing your public scholarship goals and things like that. I'm wondering what this experience has been like with these other 20 plus fantastic scholars and the uh, project leaders the last year. Yeah, it's it's been really wonderful to connect with everyone. Um, and I think it has just been so helpful to, to get some of the really practical skills mm-hmm. that come out of that, um, you know, and in particular with a project like this, you know, I mean, it, it means a lot to, to hear you say and, and recognize that, that it's a project that hopefully will have an impact uh, here, you know, and that's a huge responsibility to be doing this research that, yeah, I mean, what's the point of doing this research if we can't make it have an impact? Right. And so I think for me, this training came at such an ideal time to be able to um, to just learn these really concrete skills about how do I uh, how do I get this information in front of the people who need to know it, um, and you know whether that's you know some of it is, is about like reaching reaching other colleges, reaching the, the institutions and saying, you know, this is what your students are dealing with, um, you know, and, and some of it is about reaching much more broadly than that and saying, here is the impact of Islamophobia in this province and, and here's what we need to do. Um, I think one other uh, piece of the value of sacred rights for me as someone who works um, you know, I work in a college, um, but I'm not in a traditional academic role. Um, I'm not working as a, as a teacher or professor, and I'm, I'm not working as a job that, uh, that inherently includes research, although I was able to, uh, to apply for this grant and do this project. Um, but within my role, there's often um, a lot fewer opportunities and a whole lot less funding to connect with other academics who are doing uh, related work. Um, And then there's sort of a a snowball effect of, you know, I can't go to that conference because I don't have the funds to get there. So I don't meet those people who might have invited me somewhere else or, you know, and and there's just this, um, you know, it's, it's easy to get more and more cut off or to have to really like push hard and, and, you know, at, expense in terms of time and money to to stay within this world and I have really appreciated that um, Megan and Liz of Sacred Rights have really made a point of, um, of of including people from a lot of different positions within um, well within and outside of academia but that um, you know that it's it's a space where I've been able to connect to uh, some really wonderful academic colleagues who are in a whole bunch of different roles um, and just to to really 
stay connected as someone who really cares about, uh, you know, about my field and about the, the fields that, that mine is in conversation with, um, as, as I've seen in some of my colleagues. Yeah, I love that too. Like one of my favorite things about doing this show is when I get to talk to people who are like PhD candidates or mm-hmm. adjunct well, professors. Yeah, that's been so great too. Yeah, is it's just like this is not a space that is just totally dominated by one type of academic on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of my favorite things about you know being in charge of my own show essentially is I can talk mm-hmm. to whoever I want. And if I want to talk to somebody who is working on a PhD, about a tiny article that they like a really short article that they wrote or a blog post, um, Mm -hmm. for goodness sakes, like I can talk about anything on the show, which I love. That's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. things about it is that there's no, there's no limits to who I can talk to. Um, you know, I'm curious about some of your goals in the next year, uh, or year or two, like, what are you, what are you working on and how are you seeking to engage the, uh, the greater public? What are some of your, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think, um, the answer to that is kind of a work in progress at the moment. Sure. Um, for now, the the biggest goal right now with my current research is to uh, to wrap up the final report that we have to submit to the funding agency by the end of October. So that's uh, that's our most immediate goal. Um, you know, and that that report will be made available publicly publicly, but it's not necessarily going to be a super publicly accessible document, just, you know, it's going to be very long and, and quite academic. So um, I think as, as we're pulling that together, um, yeah, that, that there will be a lot of also working to figure out, um, you know, how do we get this information into more hands, but uh, much of that is still kind of to be determined I think one thing that that is maybe the most concrete in terms of uh, somewhat publicly public facing work is um, some resources that we're we're creating for teachers um, and actually for um, so for for especially for college teachers um, and then also for Muslim college students. Um, so there's a website that our student researchers have been working on. Um, somewhat based on the research and also just uh, pulling together some some resources uh, for them. And then uh, we've also been working on some resources for teachers. So those will be uh, made available in the next few months. Um, And then aside from that, um, and and kind of aside from that project, like I still, there, there is a lot from my, uh, from my dissertation work that I, just that I, I don't feel like I'm finished with yet. Um, and, you know, I had really high hopes of, uh, I think it was in, in the fall of 2019, I had, uh, I had even spoken to a publisher and I had really high hopes for spending a lot of 2020 um, working on a book. And, yeah, 2020 went in a different direction. So yeah. uh, that didn't happen. Um, but I, I do I do hope to do something with that research. And in some ways, the fact that I'm not um, that I'm not in a position where uh, my job rests at all on whether I publish anything academic. Right. Um, that opens up some doors. Um, and Me too. So, Mine doesn't either. 
yeah, so kind of thinking about how do I, are there things for me to do with that work that, um, that might not rely on academic publishing? And yeah. I don't know what those things are, but I'll keep you posted. Nice. <laughs> um, you know, I'm wondering if you can direct people's attention to anywhere, like any, any links or any, uh, you know, social media that you're engaged with where you actually converse with people. Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? Yeah, so probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Krista underscore Riley. Um, and I keep meaning to tweet more often than I actually do, but it certainly is a place that I do uh, share my work when, when that comes up. Uh, so I will continue to do that uh, as, as things get published. Um, and certainly if, if people wanted to contact me on Twitter, I'm very happy to respond there. Um, awesome. you know, if they're nice, I'm not gonna respond to trolls, but. Sure, well, Dr. Krista Riley, um, this has been delightful. I have learned so much. I loved learning about Quebec in particular. Uh, that is just fabulous. And I'm just really grateful to you for your time and the conversation tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Hey, thanks. It was my pleasure as well. Thanks so much for having me. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.